Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast as always is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is a writer who has been blogging and opining since 2008 and is also my namesake, just my first name. Freddie DeBoer started his career from his public library when he started his own blog whilst in a period of unemployment. After fellow journalist, gay rights trailblazer and the king of bloggers, Andrew Sullivan, shared his third blog post on his own hugely popular blog, Freddie's blog exploded and he has been writing ever since. In recent years, he is now on Substack, where he writes about mental health, politics, media, and lots of other issues. Freddie himself lives with diagnosed bipolar disorder and was diagnosed in 2002 when he was 20 years old. Since then, he has been in and out of treatment for most of his adult life. This included several mental health breakdowns where he ended up in a state psychiatric unit on one occasion and another well-publicised breakdown where he ended up attacking a fellow journalist and writer Malcolm Harris with baseless accusations of sexual criminality and it cost a lot of his reputation as a result and almost cost Freddie his career. I really wanted to chat with Freddie as I've listened to two interviews he's done with Unheard and on Barry Weiss's Outstanding Honestly podcast, where he critiques a lot of what is going on in the current mental health conversation, a lot of which I agree with. In this episode, we discuss his writing journey and how he ended up with the substack he has today, how he became disillusioned from the mental health community, in air quotes, and how he feels the pendulum has swung too hard the other way. We also discuss his bipolar disorder, why it led to those breakdowns, and the uncomfortable reality that good people, when experiencing serious mental illness, can do or say very bad things. So this is how my check-in with Freddie DeBoer went. Freddie DeBoer, my first name namesake, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. It's rare I meet a fellow Freddie in my adult life, although I am told that the name is making a comeback in Gen Z. So this is always a pleasure. First off, how are you, mate? I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, mate. I'm good. After I heard you on Barry Weiss's podcast, I've been reading your writing and various other interviews you've done. You did a really great one with Unheard, which I'm sure we'll come to later on in the pod. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show? Sure. Let's start your pod by talking about your writing journey, mate. So tell me how and why you got into it, starting from a public library, I believe, in 2008. What inspired you? And tell me about the journey to where you are today. When I was 27, 26, 27, in 2008, I found myself kind of adrift, like a lot of people are. I had lived in Chicago for a couple of years and quite enjoyed it myself, but didn't do much more than enjoy myself. And I ran out of money and I just had a series of charitable jobs and apartments I couldn't afford. So I moved back to Connecticut where I'm from and was staying at my sister's house and really had nothing going on. And I had sort of discovered blogs in the prior year or two when it was still pretty much the early blog era. And mm. I was looking at people like Matt Iglesias and Tyler Cowen and Ezra Klein and Megan McArdle. And I had been commenting a lot people's blogs and people said, Hey, you know, you seem to be pretty good on this. Why don't you try it out? And so I wrote, started my own blog. And within the first week, I think I wrote a piece that Andrew Sullivan linked to about atheism. And the king of blogs, I said in my intro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, um, I guess, liked what I had to say and it was off to the races from there. I mean, it was just the end of when you could just start a blog and become part of the conversation. Mm. If I had waited even a year or two later, I don't think that I ever would have gotten my foot in the door because it had just become such a crowded field. There were so mm. many people writing, but I it was still early enough where someone like Andrew linking to me could create opportunity. And after that, I started to get some freelance writing offers. I actually mostly turned them down for the first couple of years because for whatever reason, there was a period when I was sort of 
rejecting the title of writer. I don't really know why. I think maybe it was just anxiety about really committing myself to that and, you know, the possibility of failure. But eventually I started to take freelance assignments and I got published in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the LA Times and, you know, a ton of other places. Yeah. And it became a good little side career for me while I went through grad school. Before we talk about how you progressed that career after the New York Times and Washington Post and the Daily Beast, to name a few, you were co-signed, shall we say, by Andrew Sullivan before co-signing became a thing or before even going viral kind of became a thing. Mm. So how did you feel when it happened? And do you think you'd be where you are without Andrew Sullivan? I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, the, the thing was, is that Andrew was a big early linker because I just had a little Blogspot blog. And eventually he let me guest blog for him for a week, which was both very good money and very good for my profile. But I had already been sort of been making some connections with people via the internet, sort of blogging. And again, like it was a small, just a much smaller world back then. And so it was easier to get people to sort of link back to you. You also have to understand people, uh, I don't think know this, but like back then it was not unusual for me to write, to publish like five posts a day. Wow. And maybe two of them being like substantial essays. I mean, that wasn't me being a weirdo. That was just the thing that you the did. Norm. That you yeah. did. People used to call it hourly blogging. <laughs> and that's sort of what happened. And again, like, you know, it was a less information-rich environment. There were many fewer publications. I mean, I think Twitter existed, but it was much less of a thing uh, than it is now. And there was just much less sort of digital distraction. And so for a lot of people, having a blogger who would update five or six times a day, you know, helped to provide something for them to look at work all throughout the workday. And so people were hungry to have things to write about. And so if you put out a good essay, people would link to you and they'd link back. I think Andrew was definitely instrumental in, in raising my profile at the beginning. I don't, you know, it's hard to say what would have happened had he not, but I do think that he definitely played a big role. Let's fast forward to 2021 now. So at this point, you had lost a job and you were approached by Substack to go onto their platform. Who's Freddie the writer we meet at this point and what are the issues that you've been writing about in this space since then? Well, so as you are no doubt aware, I had a big public scandal in 2017. I yep. made a terrible false accusation against somebody, which is a complicated topic that I'm happy to talk about. I had disappeared after that. I was not writing for public consumption really at all. I would occasionally write a piece on my website, which was not being seen by any, I mean, I wasn't tweeting them out or I, I didn't have Facebook, wasn't on any social media or anything like that. So I had a couple hundred people following me on RSS. I mean, in 2018, I want to say maybe I put out like eight or 10 things on my website, usually just sort of updates about my life and sort of where I was in, in, in recovery and things like that. So I really wasn't writing much, but I had a book under contract. So uh, I had already signed with St. Martin's for my first book, The Cult of Smart. So I had to sort of reemerge. I mean, the book was coming out. I obviously couldn't return the advance they had given me <laughs> financially. And also, you know, I had an obligation to try to promote the book. That failed. The book sold terribly, unfortunately, <clears throat> which is also a complicated story. But I was basically forced to be back out there. But yeah, what I lost my job at CUNY in 2020. I had a job, an administrative job, where I was pretty miserable and not very good at the job. And they let me go. It remains my position that they sort of violated my Americans with Disabilities Act rights because I had told them officially that, you know, here are some of the symptoms of my, or some of the side effects of my medication, which could impact my job performance. And, you know, I need you guys to make a reasonable accommodation for me as they were required to by law. And they essentially did not do that. But I, like I said, I was miserable and it didn't make sense to me to fight for a job that I didn't really want to have. And so, yeah, for nine months in 2020 and 2021, I looked for any job, just a regular job. I really just wanted to, I mean, you know, after my book didn't sell and I'd had this scandal and I was just thinking, I just want to find a, you know, a inoffensive office job and do that for the rest of my life. But what I found is that I couldn't get any other job because if you Googled me, the first thing that popped up was this scandalous thing that I had done. And I couldn't say that I wasn't guilty of it because I was. And so Substack 
sent me an email and said, hey, you know, we're looking to entice more people onto our platform. We think that you're a perfect fit for what we're doing. And I've been living on unemployment for nine months. And so sort of the dwindling reserves of the advance I had gotten from my book. So I said, well, what the hell? I mean, I've got nothing better to do. And here I am. The main reason that I wanted to get you on, Freddie, is to talk about your thought-provoking and what some might find even controversial views on the current men's health conversation. Now, a lot of your views I actually agree with, which is why I wanted to have you on. Mm. Now, I want to first begin this topic by asking about your opinion on the mental health conversation in air quotes that perhaps in some quarters is now swung the other way too hard with that pendulum proverbial pendulum shall we say so yeah look with the word that is constantly invoked is stigma and the idea is that historically people who have had mental health have had to live with a lot of stigma which is like a negative social uh, reputation and a you know experiencing Social life is a series of insulting um, interactions with people who that assume that you're going to become psychotic at any moment or that you need to be put into a padded cell or that you should be hidden away in an institution, etc. That did exist, and it's bad. The problem is that the effort to, quote unquote, normalize mental illness has created a series of perverse incentives within mental illness discussion to where now, on the one hand, you had the sort of stigmatizing of mentally ill people are all psychotic savages who can snap at any moment mm-hmm. to the mentally ill are all just poor widow, you small bean cuties who have a little mental illness. This total infantilization of people with mental illness, a refusal to accept that there are many mentally ill people whose mental illness compels them to be violent or at the very least to be uh, unstable and inability to grapple with the fact that mental illness is a profoundly negative thing for almost everyone who has one. And this idea that the opposite of stigma means pretending that being mentally ill means be having acute sort of like set of personality quirks that never actually make you threatening to anyone else, right? And so that's to me almost worse, right? Because one of the things that happens when you try to normalize mental illness is you cede the floor to the mentally ill who are the most normal, right? In other words, if you keep saying mentally ill people are just like you and me, they're no different than anyone else, and they're just different, they're, they're not worse, what that means is that it's the people who are the least afflicted who become the face of mental illness, right? Right. So you have a scenario now where, like, you go on Twitter, and there are hundreds of thousands of people who are talking about hashtag ADHD life, right? And they are saying very directly that they are the face of mental illness, that having ADHD, for example, or autism that does not partake, is not, is not particularly severe, or anxiety, et cetera, these are people who live completely normal lives in terms of the ability to do the basic things that are required to survive Mm. in 2023 as a professional person and and to go to work and to pay the bills. Be high functioning. Yeah. Yeah. To be high functioning. I have no doubt that a lot of these people have to struggle with aspects of their mental health that make life difficult for them, but they are conspicuously not like the guy who is currently sleeping under a bridge in Prospect Park about a mile from where I live right now. Okay, so there's a there's a homeless man who is clearly severely mentally ill, who I see on my morning walks almost every single day, who lives under the, a bridge in the park. Right. He's not on Twitter doing hashtag, you know, mental illness. Right. So what happens over time is, you know, people who are in long term institutions are not on Twitter or Tumblr or TikTok. People who are, you know, in hospitals recovering from the fact that they've injured themselves once again because they have repetitive self-injurious behaviors are not on TikTok talking about it, right? So you create an impression of what it means to be mentally ill that is the least debilitated and the most camera ready, right? And so there's a complete lack of understanding that for many people, mental illness is debilitating. It is quite ugly. It is not at all cool or it's not the sort of thing that would gain you social media points for being an interesting person. It often provokes violence. All of that is being written out of the conversation entirely. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you see all these kids now who are on TikTok performing their mental illness, right? You know, so for example, 
Associative identity disorder is one. Associative identity disorder. Yeah. So for those listening, that's what used to be called multiple personality disorder. Its existence is controversial. So there are serious experts who have said that it has never really existed. Even among those who acknowledge that it exists or believe that it exists, it is known to be one of the rarest mental illnesses that we have ever described. Except Um, in films. (laughs) Right. Except in films, right. It's overrepresented. Right. I mean, the number of people who have had a legitimate DID diagnosis in the United States in the past hundred years, you know, is probably in the hundreds, Mm -hmm. you know, right, total. And yet now suddenly there are thousands or tens of thousands of mostly young women on TikTok who are claiming that they have dissociative identity disorder and they're performing their their, uh, diseases. Here's what you don't see. But the first time I did a stretch in a mental illness facility, mental health facility, psychiatric hospital, it was 20 years ago, but it was a guy that everybody gave a, a wide berth to, and he was on special restriction. So he had like an orderly following him around a lot of the time. And I asked somebody why. I was told it was because he liked to play with and eat his own excrement. Oh my God. And what I find is that surprisingly, there's not a lot of teenage girls on TikTok telling you about how their mental illness compels them to play with and eat their own excrement. It's remarkable. I know, who'd have thought? Isn't it remarkable that that mental illness is not one that's really very popular on TikTok, right? And this is the problem, right? So we, we have a completely facile vision of what a mental illness is. All mental illnesses are not the same. Mm-hmm. Some people have much more severe illnesses than others. And I say that as someone who is high functioning when medicated. And we now have people who just sort of say things like, oh, yeah, mental illness never makes you violent, which we know to be just empirically untrue, right? They have to say these things because they think that it's normalizing. There's a mantra or saying that is a byproduct of mental illness that I imagine me and you, Fred, both agree with, which is that it causes good people to do bad things. So, for example, say for a gambling addict, they could be a very good person, but it could make them scam their family members or their loved ones for mm-hmm. money, which they would then spend on gambling. And they would lie and say it's for paying off debts or it's for something else. Do you think we've lost that? I mean, look, you know, there was a story in the website Gizmodo about Kanye West, and it was all about how Kanye West's mental illness cannot be used to excuse his bad behavior. This was your um, unheard interview subject as well. Yeah. Yes. Listening. And it repeated the, the just simply false claim that people with mental illness are not violent because of their uh, mental illness, which simply isn't true. The National Institute of Mental Health admits that people with psychotic disorders are more likely to commit violent crimes than people without them, particularly murder. The author of that article went on Twitter and said, this is what I want to stress more than anything else. Using mental illness as your, as a excuse for bad things that you do. Mental illness can never be used as an excuse for anything bad that somebody does. And to suggest that it does stigmatizes people with mental health, right? A lot of narcissists do that, by the way. (laughs) They like to kind of cloud that shield. But yeah, Yeah. uh, it's a separate issue. But so look, like what you've then done now is in the name of honoring and destigmatizing the mentally ill, you've removed one of the basic social protections that we have for people with mental illness, which is Mm -hmm. understanding that their disorder is in some ways influential on their behavior. Now, look, the actual degree to which specific mentally ill people are culpable for their various actions under the influence of their mental illness is really, really, really hard to sort out. Mm -hmm. Right. And, I think fundamentally, one of the things that happens is people are mad that it's not morally convenient. Yes. In other words, it's not black and white. It's just much easier to navigate a world where you can say, like, okay, everything this person does is 100% their fault. This is particularly true with with no complication. This is particularly true in a world where. Internet shaming is one of the fundamental ways in which we sort of enforce socially acceptable behavior, right? People feel that they need to have this tool of being able to name and shame. And if they don't, they feel that somehow they've been wronged. But the reality is is getting away with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a guy named Bailey Hammer, who's from Illinois. I think he's in his late 20s. And last year, you know, he, he is a kind of a classic American case where 
access to like real long-term inpatient mental health care is actually really, really hard in this country. There is a concern that you often hear about people getting thrown institutions and never getting let out. In fact, the problem is literally the opposite, which is that it's actually much harder to get someone into inpatient care (laughs) rather than the problem being that it's too hard to get them out. Bailey Hammer's parents knew that he was schizophrenic and that he was unstable and that he was a danger to himself and to others. I can see where this is going. He begged people for the opportunity to get him into inpatient programs. There were no beds. Over and over again, they sought more intensive treatment for him. They never got it. And so last year, Bailey Hammer took a knife and he stuck it in another guy's head. And now like two lives are over, right? Like the guy that Bailey Hammer killed is dead. And Bailey Hammer will spend the rest of his life probably in a state prison if he's lucky in a mental health facility and finally getting the long-term care that he needs only after you have effectively ended his life, right? Because from the American viewers out there, there's a perception that if you are found not guilty on, as a matter of mental illness, it means like you get out or something, which is not true. If you kill someone under the influence of mental illness, you'll spend the rest of your life in a mental health facility very often. So, And so the question is, is like, what is the moral challenge that we have in the face of someone like Bailey Hammer. If you are among the crowd of people online who say like, oh, mental illness never never excuses bad behavior, mental illness doesn't cause anybody to to do anything violent, yeah. then you just you just throw him in jail, right? You know, before his crime, he had been telling people that he saw demons crawling on the side of his wall. Oh, right? Jesus. And this was consistent with years and years of violent and paranoid delusions on his part, right? I find it almost impossibly perverse, the idea that we should not understand his behavior as being the product of his mental illness and extend him some weighing of that mental illness when we decide what happens with him next. Now, Mm. No one is saying, and no one will say, that he should just get to just walk around free. And in fact, that's not what his parents want, right? He will spend, even in the best case scenario, several decades in a highly secure facility because he did something that's very terrible and he killed someone. But you have to allow things to mitigate your judgment, right? Not to determine or to wipe away your judgment, but to change the moral calculus for you. And again, like I said, people don't want to do that because they want their their moral judgments to be simplistic. And so with my own scandal, where I made this false accusation about somebody, I was manic and psychotic and operating under um, the constraints of a kind of paranoia that I can't describe in rational terms. I've never said and would never say that I'm not responsible for it and that I should pay no penalty for it. And I have paid a penalty for it, trust me. But what I've said is that people should mitigate their understanding of what happened with the knowledge that I have a two decade long history with bipolar disorder. I was public about being bipolar long before that happened. And they should use that to inform their judgment. And again, people don't want to do that, right? Like they want to either say, okay, mental illness was at play, so therefore you are completely innocent, or it doesn't matter if you were mentally ill, you're completely guilty. There's just such an attachment to judgments that feel sort of emotionally satisfying rather than dealing with the inherent complexity of these issues. We're going to talk about that incident a little bit more, but not too much later on in the pod, Fred. But another thing that I've found quite uncomfortable in the current mental health conversation I'm sure you've probably got an opinion on this is how it slipped into the quote-unquote culture war of identity politics in many ways and what I mean by this is that many people now put their diagnoses in their Twitter bios for example and on one hand I understand why they do it because they're doing it from the place of well I want people to know and understand what I have so they can treat me in the best way possible etc 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 however I never wanted to do that when I started vent I never would advocate for people doing it But what is your opinion on this? Look, the fact that I have bipolar disorder is a part of my identity. and It's It's not your identity. (laughs) It is not my identity, right? It influences who I am, but it's not everything that I am. I mean, one of my basic reads of modern culture is just that, you know, people are just desperate for structures to give their life comprehensibility, right? Mm. In other words, people wander around in life and they don't feel like that they are fully realized human beings with like 
clear personality boundaries and with values and with identities and with there just seems to be this all-encompassing identity hunger to sort of say i need this thing that tells me who i am and that mm. is all in sort of encompassing and so you know you will often see this with people who have various minority or marginalized identity particularly like when they get to college this very often happens where suddenly that becomes the overarching reality of their entire life is I have this, I am this, this is, you know, because so many people don't feel like they really are like human beings, right? They don't feel like they purpose. have a personhood, yeah. right? Mm. For a lot of people, it's very attractive to be a, the idea of like just being a mental illness, right? One of the things that will happen now all the time is, you know, over time, these mental illnesses develop these just enormously long lists of symptoms, mm. right? ADHD has a list of potential symptoms that's hundreds of symptoms long. And what that means is that anyone can de decide, oh, look, I do this sometimes, right? I feel scattered sometimes. Sometimes um, I, you know, would rather do, I mean, like, it is so farcical, the things that people list as, as symptoms of ADHD online, mm. online. Like, you know, I'd rather do what I want to do than my work. Wow. Right? You know, like you'd rather do something fun than do work. That's, that's fucking incredible. What a, what a unique individual you are. Anyway, over time, the lists of symptoms get so long that absolutely anyone can find themselves within them. Yes. Anyone and can self-diagnose. Yeah. Right. And then once, once they've self-diagnosed or also people will just doctor shop until they get the di the official diagnosis they want to get. I mean, a lot of shrinks, they sort of take the attitude of if I don't diagnose this person, with what they clearly want to be diagnosed with. They'll just find another doctor who will, so I might as well do it. And so what happens is that, okay, now I've got my diagnosis and now there's this whole culture online that I can join and I can say, hey, it's ADHD online culture. Look, look, hashtag ADHD, hashtag ADHD life. There's all these people talking about how ADHD determines absolutely every element of their personality and their behavior, right? There's all these people talking about how this is this all-encompassing thing. So now suddenly, I feel like I'm a, I'm a member of a community, and I feel like there are these guardrails on my life where my behavior can always be explained by this exterior force. And so I suddenly am responsible for nothing, and I don't have to do the work of being a human and having a personality anymore, mm. right? Now, I can just be ADHD guy. And if you look online, there's lots of people who are just are ADHD guy or, or anxiety other conditions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anxiety girl, DID person. You know, it's BPD this, is another one. Yeah, yeah. This thing has taken off my shoulders the burden of being a human being. I'm recovery, and, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, so and so here's and so here's you know some of the problems with that. The first is that once you have decided that one of these illnesses just is who you are and it becomes the core to your self-presentation online. You therefore have every reason not to get better, right? Mm. Rather than seeing this as a problem to be addressed, which is inherently what mental illnesses are, you are now have an incentive to be worse, right? If I'm going online and I'm getting likes and retweets, if I if my TikToks are getting shared because I'm talking about having ADHD, then I have absolutely no reason to want to improve. I have absolutely no reason to want to mitigate my symptoms. I want to become my illness, so I want to get worse, right? And the whole point, right, is that, as I always say, like, there's no such thing as justice with mental illness. People talk about, like, justice and mental illness. It's a totally bizarre concept. We're not looking for justice. We're looking for effective treatment, yeah. right? We want to treat our illnesses, but there's no reason to treat anything if you go online and you, and you are cosplaying being mentally ill with a bunch of other people on Twitter, right? And then, you know, the other thing is that you get into this consumer mentality where a mental illness is nothing different from where you buy your clothes or the music that you listen to or the posters you put up on your wall when you were a teenager, right? You get into a sense in which having a mental illness is just another consumer choice that you can choose. And again, we've destigmatized everything. So no, but not only do people not feel bad about having mental illnesses, now they're very proud to have them and they find them the core of their identities. And 
Among other problems with this, one of the fundamental is we have limited resources for mental health in our society, right? We're already talking about a system that is strained beyond its capacity to treat people who have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or severe borderline personality disorder or schizoaffective disorder, et cetera. We are already talking about a system that has strained resources. And so now you have the system is swamped. For example, like with Tourette's, which is not a mental illness, but has this same scenario where people suddenly decided they had Tourette's as a way of sort of performing a certain way to be online. You have Tourette's spreads through social media. TikTok now. Tourette's, yeah. yeah. TikTok, TikTok Tourette's. And the problem is, is like, there's only a certain number of Tourette's experts in the country, right? They were already busy before all of you people decided you had Tourette's and there just aren't that many resources available. And so the system is just feeling the strain of all these people who are having these performative bullshit mental illnesses in order to have sort of a, an identity online Mm. and real people will suffer because they are unable to get access to care because the system is being choked by these mm. figures. Uh, Tourette's is a serious, serious condition. Like there's been documentaries on it. People who have Tourette's and their tics are saying outrageous stuff in public. Like they can't live normal lives. I remember watching a documentary and a guy, this ridiculous guy, he invented a technique in his head where he was drumming in his head and it stopped him ticking. But the people who can't tick and they say completely ridiculous, racist, misogynist or homophobic or disgusting things because of their Tourette's, they can't live normal lives socially. Like for people to pretend they have it to get social clout, I just find it despicable, really. Yeah. And also real Tourette's is very often comorbid with serious seizure disorders, which Mm. is not the sort of thing you're going to fake to get TikTok club. Yeah. You spoke earlier in that answer, Fred, about community in air quotes and another flaw that i've found in this conversation is that the overton window has been narrowed in what political beliefs mental health advocates i put in air quotes because i don't really consider myself one are allowed to have and express so it's you can talk about mental health unless you think this and then you're kind of disbanded or cut out of the clique basically have you found this in the u.s as well yeah i mean look I am, because of my own mental illness and my own history, extended a certain amount of rope with the things that I'm saying right now that I would not be extended if I didn't have mental illness. But of course, everything that I'm saying would be just as true or false as it was anyway, whether I had it or not, right? There's this, you know, infection of what, you know, they call standpoint theory, which is just that like the only people who can comment on a subject are the people who actually... Oh, are, that, yeah, that, yeah. that bollocks, yeah. <laughs> yeah, people, the only people who can comment on a subject are the people who are themselves personally afflicted by or, or, or part of. So you can only talk about issues of race if you're a person of color, for example. You know, just to pick an example. I think standpoint theory is absurd. I think that because a matter of basic human psychology, we often have the least clarity about issues that affect us. Right. In other words, like, yes, we have experience that can help us in certain ways with certain questions, but also we tend to have blinders on and all kinds of things. The range of opinion has narrowed because, again, people are afraid to say the simple reality, which is that having mental illness is bad. Right. Like by definition, I mean, it's a big thing online to sort of declare that there's nothing wrong with you and that your mental illness isn't a bad thing, to which I would just always say, okay, then by definition, you are not mentally ill, right? Like, and the really weird thing is people talk a lot about the accommodations that are required by the Americans with Disabilities Act. You you need to make accommodations for people with mental illness, but these are the same people who say that there's nothing wrong with having a mental illness and it's not a bad thing. What is the basis for asking for accommodation if you don't have any problem, right? Like, what are you asking for accommodation for? If your claim is that your mental illness has no downsides and that it should never be talked about as something bad and it's just another identity marker like any other, then why should I, you know, for what possible reason should I have to extend you any special accommodation at all? There's nothing to accommodate, right? Like, there's, there's nothing that I would have to accommodate if you actually aren't suffering from anything. And we're trapped in this just sort of bizarre and frankly incoherent position where mental illness isn't bad and there's nothing negative about having mental illness, but also we have to understand mentally ill people as uniquely suffering. It doesn't make any sense.
let's reflect on this writing journey, Fred. So A, what has been your proudest achievement along it? And what has it taught you about yourself? Yeah, I just think that I'm really good at it. Nice. Uh, to be <laughs> frank with you. You know, all the freelancing and all the names of places that I have gotten published, like I just got published in New York Magazine this past week for the first time, which is nice. That kind of stamp collecting thing. So, you know, what happened fairly early in my blogging career was that people who were sort of paid up big media types would sort of say, oh, you know, you, you know you're just a blogger. You know, you, no one cares. You can't, you, all you can do is blog on blogger or whatever. So I just made up a list of the places that I was going to publish in. And one by one over the course of years, I just, I take them all off. That kind of stamp collecting aspect of freelancing, it doesn't really matter to me that much anymore. I mean, there was a time when I really was compelled to prove that I could do this to other people. And now I kind of feel that I have proven it. Yeah, I just think that I have a fastball, so to speak, as a writer. I'm very much invested in prose style and in the craft of writing. And if I'm proud of anything, it's that when I'm on my game, I think I do it as well as anybody who's doing it right now. Yeah. What was the other question? What has it taught you about yourself? Hmm. The biggest thing is just accepting that this was what I was going to do. Again, like I think that I resisted calling myself a writer for a long time because the fear of failure, right? Like that if I said I was one and then I didn't become su successful, I would have sort of cursed myself. But also, you know, it forecloses on possibility. And when you're a younger person, you know, like when I was in my 20s, you know, it's, you want to keep open the possibility that there's anything that you could be. And over time, I've come to realize, like I, like I put my second book to bed in terms of finishing the manuscript. I'm going to have it be able to announce the name and the cover and stuff like that and pre-orders fairly soon. It's the first time in a Schuster. And I waited a couple months too long to get started on the actual manuscript. And so I had to hurry to write the book. And, you know, I sat down and there's this, I'm writing a 300 page book. And it's like, there's this moment of like, can I do this? And over the next couple of weeks, I was like, oh yeah, I can do this, right? Having faith in yourself to be able to get that work done and to do it at a high level of quality is uh, a good feeling. We've talked about Freddie, the writer. I want to talk about your own mental health journey, Fred. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you had? Who's the Freddie we meet here? Well, it's complicated. I grew up in a lovely little middle-class household in Connecticut. My father was a professor. My mother was a nurse. I had two brothers and a sister. And we had, you know, dogs and cats. And we lived in a, a, a nice little house surrounded by fields on all sides. And it was pretty idyllic. My mother died of brain cancer when I was seven, which was obviously hard for everybody. My father who was a whole, whole story that you can talk about. I mean, he had been a big drinker even when she was around and after she she died, he was just, you know, collapsed into total alcoholism. I just don't think he could deal with things. And that was a particularly bad idea because he had hepatitis. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, we struggled for a long time. I mean, he was just drunk all the time, you know, but he was not abusive at all. He was a very gentle man. He was more of a sad drunk. He would uh, lock himself in his room with a bottle of vodka every night and we wouldn't see him for hours. Eventually, he remarried to a woman that I don't talk about. We attempted to do a blended family thing, which was really disastrous. Her family and our family, we bought a big house and sort of tried to move in together. And anyway, he died of uh, liver cancer when I was 15. And she and I had a violently dysfunctional relationship. So I cut out of there when I was 17 or maybe early 18. As soon as I was old enough to leave, I left after my high school years. I had a lot of depression uh, in my late teens and early 20s, uh, just really crushing depression. I had gotten my own little apartment, little studio uh, in my hometown, and it would just be, you know, glued to the floor, you know, curled up from depression. And I didn't really have a vocabulary for it. And I didn't know how to sort of sort that out from talking about my, like my unhappiness with what happened with my family and with mm. my ex-stepmother and so anyway, I dealt with that for a long time, and then I came out of it. Um, unfortunately, I came out of it when I was 20 into a, a sort of full-bloom psychotic mania. I had a psychotic break, 
2002, I had become really floridly paranoid and I was not leaving the apartment. And I had this little red car and I had gone to think, the supermarket or something and the transmission had broken. The car was still under warranty, so I still don't know why I didn't just go to get it fixed. But I, well, I might know why because I was all fucked up. And I went to push the car. I couldn't go in reverse. So I went to push the car back into a parking space. And I was struggling to push the car back into this parking space. And this neighbor came out to talk to me about it. And for whatever reason, I got into a screaming argument with him. And the cops came and they took me to the hospital ER, local ER in my hometown. And they gave me a shot of Haldol and uh, sent me to state psychiatric facility where I spent a couple weeks, several weeks after that, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, put on oral antipsychotics as well, lithium, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually they let me out. And I mean, I didn't even get a ride. I, I didn't want to tell anyone. So I, they kept asking me, where, you know, where are your folks, where are your folks? And I wouldn't tell them anything. And I had a, a bag of meds and um, some papers with a referral and supposed to go look for an outpatient psychiatrist. And I took the meds for a little while and then I stopped. And then, you know, I did that going on and off meds, but almost always off. I mean, usually off for the next 15 years of my life and had several other, never as bad as that, but I went, I was hospitalized again another, I think five times, always voluntarily though, the following times. Yeah. And then in 2017, I had this very familiar sort of thing. I become extremely paranoid and I become very um, obsessed with ideas of personal betrayal. When it gets bad, I eventually start to think that people are like draining money from my bank account or trying to poison me and stuff like that. Um, but for most of it, it's usually just a, a sense that people have left me, have abandoned trust, have are conspiring against me. It's like a very common thing for me to call someone and, and say, did somebody else tell you that I should be, that you should stop talking to me? Stuff like that. But yeah, in 2017, it happened again, but this time, and I, I had been harassing people in that vein for months when everything finally popped off in 2017. And I accused another writer of a terrible crime based on nothing. I don't know. I thought that he was trying to harm me. He had retweeted a list of enemies that some publication had published. But at the time, I thought that he had written it for whatever reason, and I lost it and tried to, I don't know, just attack and destroy him, which obviously didn't work because that was a completely made up uh, accusation with no like follow through or plan behind it. So that sort of destroyed my professional reputation, but that wasn't what sort of got me into treatment. I had threatened someone uh, with physical violence that weekend in a voicemail, which is not how I recommend you yeah, that's basically I mean, snitching on yourself, but yeah. <laughs> um, I, that's not how I recommend you make your, th your threats for the people listening at home. And anyway, they called me and they said, like, you know, if you do go to the hospital, I might still call the cops on you. But if you don't go to the hospital, I'm definitely going to call the cops on you. So my younger brother came up from D.C. and he took me to uh, a mental institution where I did not get admitted for complicated reasons. But I was able to get a shot of Geodon, which is an antipsychotic from a, another doctor, and which enabled me to be able to find a, a outpatient psychiatrist who still treats me to this day. And I've been on meds for five and a half years. In that period where you weren't getting the help that you needed, were you in denial about the extent of the bipolar disorder? Were you not self-aware enough? What was your thought process like until it led up to that breakdown? Yeah, I don't know that it was, I mean, certainly I was in denial to the extent that for years afterwards, pretty much until I got to grad school, like if I was walking around, I would not have thought of myself as someone who had bipolar disorder. It wasn't like the memories just weren't there, but that it was, they were so easily to sort of compartmentalize and file away that I just didn't confront them or think about them. And then, you know, I had years, I mean, this is pretty common, but I had years of sort of deciding that I had finally seen the light and understood what my problem was. And I knew who and what I was and when, what I needed to do and that I needed to be medicated. And then I had come to terms medication and then I was not cured, but I, you know, I was, I was on the path and then I would stop taking the meds again, you know, because it's very easy to just not take meds. And, you know, I would always 
I would skip a day and just think, oh, I'm just skipping a day and it's not a big deal. I'll take them tomorrow or I'd take them, you know, three nights out of five. Like I would just be unconsciously reducing the amount of time that I would take the meds. And then I would, you know, the next thing I would know, it would have been a week since I had taken them. And suddenly the idea of taking them was very scary. And I, and I stopped, you know, I mean, like it was definitely years of denial and then years of a lot of rationalization and self-deceit about being cured and being on the right path and stuff like mm. that. After that incident happened, amazingly and graciously, Malcolm Harris never pursued legal action for what you did, nor mm-hmm. try to cancel you from the industry. I guess you, in essence, cancelled yourself. But in today's society, that action almost feels alien. I presume Malcolm will never hear this podcast because my podcast isn't that big. But have you ever had a conversation with him? And if you haven't, what do you think you would say to him if he was listening? I have not. I published a apology a few months after that happened when I had it together to do so. I have not reached out to him directly. And I, I frankly don't think that he would want me to. That's um, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I would just say that I'm very sorry, which I remain. You know, I don't know the degree to which... I mean, people say a lot of things about it that are not true. I mean, one of the things that people always say is that, you know, I sort of deny my guilt or I I, I think that my mental illness means that I should be completely exonerated for what I do. And I've never said that. I've never thought that. I think that my mental illness is something that should be borne in mind when it's discussed. I mean, I did it and I'm responsible for it. And... I accept that I had to pay a penalty for it. I have and am still paying a penalty for it. There's plenty of people that I knew socially who have never talked to me since. And I lost a tremendous amount of professional opportunity. It is the case that had I not been manic, I wouldn't have done that. That doesn't mean that I'm not responsible for it, right? I mean, there are people who think that I'm just making it all up in terms of my bipolar disorder or my mania. I have been public about this before... I think I first talked about it online in 2015. But I mean, my, the question for the people who think that I'm faking or that I, it, you know, I just made it up that I have bipolar disorder or whatever, it's like, you know, what was my plan, right? The accusation was completely, as it would have to be, the accusation was completely unbelievable. There wasn't any named victim. I mean, like, I don't know what, if I was in my right mind, my plan would have been like, okay, make a completely unsubstantiated and evidence-free accusation of rape of, against someone. And then like, what, like, what was the next step of my plan? Right. So when people say that I'm faking it, I just don't know, like, what rationally what I have thought to have gotten out of that. But ultimately, yeah, I mean, if I could talk to Malcolm, I would just say that I was sorry, you know, that I'm terribly sorry. And I know that he had every opportunity to be vindictive towards me and to to fucking sue me, you know, for libel or whatever, or to try to do as much as he could to prevent me from having a professional opportunity in the future. He never did that. And for that, I'm very grateful. And I think he probably just doesn't want to deal with me and I don't blame him. And so, you know, I try to stay away. Have you forgiven yourself? (laughs) still think about it every day. I mean, the thing is, is I think one of the things that bothers some people is it's a very big deal and something that I'm very sorry for. It happens to be the case that it is like, for me, it is part of a larger pattern of behavior that I've been dealing with since I was 20 years old, right? There's plenty of stuff that I did in the past that could have gotten me canceled had people gone public with it. Again, like my default behavior when I become manic and I become so paranoid is that I become sort of harassing and sort of stalking style behaviors. And I have harassed and stalked people on several occasions, including in the, you know, the the months leading up to the days leading up to when that happened. And so, like, I have a whole set of regrets that I have to deal with when it comes to my bipolar disorder, and Malcolm's is a big one, and one for which I'm extremely contrite and unhappy and sorry. 
but I have to sort of fold it into this broader sense of just being regretful about everything. Right. Mm. And so it's just difficult. You know, I mean, it's the, I feel guilt and shame about who I am all the time. And the problem I think for, for things is like, there is no space where guilt and shame about the things that I've done have ended and guilt and shame about having this disorder begins, right? In other words, I cannot separate my sense of sort of guilt and shame about what I've done from my sense of guilt and shame about what I am. And people don't like that because, again, they think that I should not feel guilt and shame for being bipolar, right? But they don't get to tell me what to feel guilt and shame about, right? Like, I, I am ashamed for being this and for having this. And it is entirely connected to the behaviors that I have done for which I have great regret. And, you know, I don't really care if that's not comfortable for other people. I want to talk about more sunnier climbs now. So when it comes to recovery, how have you gone about recovering from this period of your life? I imagine coming off social media permanently was one step, but how have you done this in other parts of your life too? So it's just, I mean, it's just working the program in terms of taking your meds and seeing your doctor. I mean, I, you know, I tell people sometimes that I have this very contrarian and radical approach to treating mental illness, which is, you know, take your meds to your therapy and see your doctor, right? Like I was I, saying, saying to people that Kanye should have been doing a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. So when I first got back on meds in 2017, I was on just brain-meltingly high doses of everything. I am generally speaking on a lithium, an antipsychotic, which has been a lansipine in the past five years. So in the past, I've, I've done, uh, I've been on risperidone and Seroquel, Bupropion, which is an antidepressant. I've been on Prozac in the past, although I'm not on it now. I was on Lamictal, which is a anticonvulsant for a little while, but I had a terrible rash from it, so I had to stop. And I've had various, so uh, I've had a a benzodiazepine prescriptions, so like Xanax or Valium, usually you get prescribed them as a sort of short-term response to feeling a manic episode coming on. You take some of those things to, to mellow yourself out so that you can pursue a, a more treatment, but also for sleep and relaxation and stuff like that. I used to take speed, dextroamphetamine, when I was working my office job because the antipsychotics have such a terrible effect on my memory and my focus that I was taking the dexedrine to try to combat that, those effects, which is a Literally speed up your mind, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's what they call a, a medication cascade when you take one medication to deal with the side effects of another. And I have a trazodone prescription for sleep, et cetera. So I, you know, I mean, at, at one point I was taking something like seven meds um, regularly. Yeah. And I see my doctor and I've been in and out of therapy. I'm not in therapy now. Getting therapy can really be a nightmare when you have a psychotic disorder. And it's extremely difficult to get a therapist in general in New York, despite there being more therapists here than anywhere else. And the money and the scheduling and the stuff like that. But I need to get back into therapy. So yeah, I've just worked the program, you know, I mean, I just do what I need to do. And I have been, you know, it was impressed on me that I can't afford another breakdown. It'll just be the end of me. And so, you know, I mean, I was 35, I don't know, 35 years old. And, you know, my younger brother, my little brother had to come up from, from Washington to come take care of me again. There was just a sense that like, uh, it was time that to finally understand that I understood, like, I just was not too smart for this, right? Like I, I, I couldn't be clever about this as a way to deal with it, you know? Mm. Before we reflect on this mental health journey, Fred, you became an orphan at quite a young age. You lost both mm. your parents very young. And clearly I would imagine that was a factor in the mental health breakdowns that you had and the mental health difficulties that you had. Do you think you've made peace with that or processed it properly now? You know, I, I mean, it's a journey. It's a lot of stuff to deal with. I've always been of the opinion that, that there are, you know, genetic links as well as an influence of life events. Have I like worked it out about my parents and everything that happened? No. You know, I try to remind myself that a lot of people have a lot of really tragic childhoods. My girlfriend is someone who endured a lot in, in childhood as well, you know, and, but no, you know, I mean, I'm still working on it. I'm still excavating it or whatever they say in therapy. And now let's reflect and 
I'll ask you one final question before we move on. So similar to the first topic, what has this journey taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and talk to the Freddie who was in that public library about to start his own blog, the 20-year-old Freddie who had just been diagnosed with bipolar, or the Freddie who was in the grips of those bipolar, psychotic, manic episodes, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I mean, you know, look, like, I think that I would tell the 20-year-old Freddie, I would say, like, look, man, your early childhood was really difficult. Your adolescence was really difficult. High school was really difficult. Like, actually, like, high school itself, like, going to high school um, and, like, the social life and stuff like that, that for me actually was was good and that stuff was fine compared to a lot of people who have a lot of trauma for, associated with it. But, like, those years in the house with my father's third wife were not good and... You can't skip the step of sort of getting through that sort of stuff. You can't just sort of numb it all out and just sort of burrow ahead and deal with it. And I needed, I should have told myself, like, you know, I wish I could tell myself, like, look, like, you really need to take time out to heal and to deal with this and to get professional help. And also, it turns out you have this really serious psychotic disorder and that's got to be treated. You can't handle it by yourself. You can't push it aside. You can't rationalize it away. And you can't just control it, which, you know, I would prove to myself over the ensuing 15 years. You have to actually, like, address it. But, you know, like I said, I didn't have a vocabulary for any of the stuff that I was feeling or, or the things that I were doing, that I was doing at the time. You know, like, I just didn't know what it meant to be traumatized or what mental illness really was. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Fred, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? You know, I'd like to think that it's okay. I am medicated and that is fine. The side effects aren't great. They never have been, but they're better than the alternative. And yeah, I mean, I could be doing a lot worse. What age were you, Fred, when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually a product of your mental health? I mean, I guess you would have to say uh, 20 uh, when I went to the psychiatric hospital, which is a whole thing. I mean, you're like, like I said, like I started with a shot of Hamadol, which in and of itself is intense. And then I was on all these oral antipsychotics. And if I ever write the mental health book that people keep asking me to write, <laughs> um, I'll talk about it. But the way in which you are removed from the flow of your regular life when you are in an inpatient psychiatric hospital setting, the way in which that happens is it's necessary for the healing process, but it has the unfortunate side effect of making it easy afterwards to seem like a fantasy period that was not part of your real life. So yeah, I mean, I didn't really get on board with everything until I was 35. But when I was 20, it was it became inarguable that I had a real problem. Can you remember and tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have on you looking back? Did it feel like on the one hand, a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other, something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I mean, I guess it depends. I mean, counsel, you know, I got pulled into the guidance counselor's office a few times in both like in, I think in elementary school, definitely in middle and high school. I just tried to keep my head down. I didn't, you know, the sort of short term priority in those conversations or with, with anything with school was just not to have to deal with it. The sense of being someone who needed to be taken care of was something that I was very resistant to as a child. And I just felt so embarrassed and, and didn't know how to talk through my problems. <sighs> After that, it was, you know, whoever did my first appointment at psychiatric facility where I ended up when I was 20, I don't know, it was weird. It was made clear to me that I couldn't leave up front. Looking back on it, it just seems strange to me. Like, I don't remember any kind of a hearing or anything. I was just sort of communicated to me that I had to be there for a while. At some point they said, well, you know, you're free to go when you, whenever you want, but, you know, we think you should stay for a while. So I did. And then one day they were just sort of leading me out. You know, I don't know the sort of how the sort of legal thing went, but yeah, I guess that first thing, and it was just a discussion about the only thing I really remember is they were asking me a lot about drugs. And I think that they might've thought that I had been high or something or on meth or something when, when I first got brought in, but I don't really recall a lot, a lot about that whole period. 
what things in life do you find that trigger your mental health or your bipolar? So it could be things people say to you, a particular sound, a sensation, being in a social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I think that it's just, it's cyclical. I have, I sort of am classically bipolar. I, I mean, I, I mean, I read all these people online talking about having ultra rapid cycling or whatever, which is like, you know, they say, oh, my bipolar makes me manic in the morning and depressed in the, in the evening. I, that is totally foreign to my... Isn't that BPD? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's totally foreign to my experience of what bipolar disorder is. But even when I'm medicated, it does sometimes become apparent to me when I am in a manic or depressive cycle underneath my medication. The medication keeps me level enough that I can proceed and have a normal life. But it doesn't entirely eliminate the experience of having an underlying mood cycle going on. My girlfriend is aware of when I am experiencing a manic state underneath my medication when I'm in that period, and it does come out in some ways. But I, I don't think I'm particularly triggered by things more than anything more than sort of my underlying psychology or physiology or whatever. Mm. What positive tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better, I guess, outside of medication? Which ones have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I'm not a big medication. I'm not, I mean, I'm not a big mental health journey kind of person. I don't like, I don't like have like daily affirmations or things like that. Mm -hmm. Which is fine. (laughs) Yeah. I don't go in for a lot of the sort of more, uh, maybe say like spiritual elements of it. Like some people do. If it works for people, that's great. For the first year and a half after everything happened in 2017, I didn't drink, which is good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm, I drink beer. My relationship to alcohol remains completely changed. I just drink much, much less than I would have before. I wasn't working the steps, but I went to uh, AA meetings for a year after that happened. And it was actually very comforting, even though that wasn't really my problem, to just to be in. The thing about it is like, again, it's really hard to get into therapy. It's hard to afford therapy. It's hard to find a therapist who is accepting new patients. It's hard to find a therapist who takes your insurance. It's hard to find a therapist who has a, a an appointment time that you can see, et cetera. Whereas with these AA meetings, there was just dozens near me in the city and I could just show up, right? And then nobody charged me and nobody hassled me. But no, now I'm religious about taking my meds and I have a very specific sort of thing of making the affirmative choice to take my meds every single day. It's never a matter of habit or a a sort of unconscious thing. It's always a matter of specifically choosing to take my meds and trying to forgive myself for things that I should forgive myself for and just keeping in mind everything that I've already lost. What is the best book you've read for your mental health? Good question. Um, Hmm. There was a book that came out last year called Healing by a guy named, I believe it's Thomas Insel, who was the former head of the National Institutes of Mental Health. In some ways, it's a depressing book because it talks about all, all the things that we haven't accomplished in terms of treating mental illness and how we failed in a lot of our scientific tasks that we set for ourselves in the last 25 years. I mean, it's interesting. I guess, you know, it's, it's definitely like just an informative nonfiction book, which I guess says something about my approach to all this stuff. I don't need a lot of affirmation. And Mm -hmm. I guess the things that sort of people get out of that through reading, I'm more likely to do through writing. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, Fred, what would it be and why? Yeah. See your doctor. Go do your therapy. Take your meds. Uh, I thought it would be. (laughs) And as a final question, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if most importantly, they want to do it? Sure. Define it as a medical problem, right? I mean, I think I think part of the one of my issues with the sort of spiritualist vision of mental health and the sort of woo-woo sort of thing of like, you know, of it's this wild journey and like, you, you know, and you need to commune with your heart and stuff like that is some people are naturally turned off by that sort of thing. There should not be, a, I mean, if people access that, that approach and it works for them, then I'm happy for them and they should keep doing it. But to get more people to consent to taking part in mental health care, we have to make it healthcare like any other. And we should cultivate the sense yeah. that a mental illness is no different than treating diabetes or psoriasis or irritable bowel syndrome, right? It's just 
you go to your doctor, you receive the appropriate medication, and you treat yourself in a way that sort of the best practices is identified by the medical establishment, right? To sort of keep the focus on, you know, you wouldn't feel bad about taking statins for your blood pressure. You shouldn't feel bad about taking an antidepressant for your depression, etc. And on that note, Freddie DeBoer, this has been an excellent conversation and I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you very much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Freddie DeBoer for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. I hope this podcast has provided more nuance to you listeners about the reality of mental illness and why it isn't as black and white as some people would have you believe. I'll put a link to where you can subscribe to Freddie's Substack in the show notes, as always. And if you've liked what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying, please share it on social media, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, spread the word about Vent and the podcast. If you've been generous, please give us a review and five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithm. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so by going to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. You can go to our GoFundMe and make a one-off donation. You can buy a Vent t-shirt or you can buy a ticket to Just Checking In Live number four, take two, on Saturday the 15th of April 2023 at the Victoria in Dalston. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys... It is always okay to vent.